FEMA has a tool for measuring a community's resilience. It's called the shock cycle. The shock cycle illustrates in four phases the ongoing measures which governments, businesses, and civil society withstand, manage, and learn from shocks due to emergencies. When the CDC confirmed the first COVID cases in the United States at the end of January, countless psychologists, health systems experts, economists, politicians, and so on, adapted the concept to their particular field of expertise. They theorized what stage we were at, what was to come, and graded us on our resiliency. If healthcare delivery isn't done in accordance with um, what does school hygiene. openings look like in terms of the data that you the now have is on we're this? We're not epidemiologists you know, on as economists. It's a necessary tool. I get it. But so limited. Some parts of resiliency can't be measured. You can't quantify the heroism of a pregnant ER nurse, the adaptability of a working mother of four, or the emotional endurance of someone living alone during quarantine. You can't know where or in whom they find their source of strength. Reading and hearing countless negative critiques by experts, I couldn't help thinking, I guess you've never been to Detroit. Today on Detroit Stories, we hear from a nurse, a young adult, a remote teaching mother and her son, and the manager of a restaurant, all from Metro Detroit who show us what resilience really means. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Phase one, preparedness. This first phase of the shock cycle measures how well prepared a group of people are for catastrophic events. It looks at provisions, emergency planning, training, etc. But if we were to measure preparedness through a spiritual lens, I imagine it would look a little different because God doesn't work in an economy and the strength he offers isn't a limited currency. There's no way to assess the endurance of someone journeying through hardships with God. There is an unexpected growth that can't be accounted for. My name is Laura Knaus, and I live in downtown Detroit. Laura Knaus moved to Detroit in 2019 to take a job as associate superintendent of Detroit Catholic Schools. It's a big job, but Laura had a plan for that. So when I when I first moved to Detroit, I had um, I had decided that I was going to um, put a uh, put a boundary on my work life balance, and um, has said, you know, I will not work from home and um, just decided that work was for work, even if I had to work really late or stay at the office really late, that I wouldn't, um, that I wouldn't bring work home. I would just stay at work until my work was finished. So God laughed me, uh, <laughs> said, not, not only do you work from home, now you only work from home. My name is Kelly Koenigschnicht. Um I live in Royal Oak. Um, my husband, Nick, and I have three kids. Um, I'm a nurse at Royal Oak Beaumont in the emergency room. I've been there about seven years, and I've been a nurse just over 10 years. Royal Oak Beaumont is uh, the biggest emergency room in the state of Michigan. Um, we see about 130 to 140,000 patients a year. Um, so it's the busiest, and it's also the only num- uh, number one trauma unit. And Kelly is up for the job. She's a bit detail-obsessed. I'm a control freak. I'm a control freak at work. I like I've, I've a method to what I do with my patients. I keep them. I, I like to say organized. Anyone that's a nurse knows what that means, but essentially it's that I, I know exactly what's going on with them. I, you know, I keep their meds organized and everything. And I've had to kind of let go of not safety things, but just some of my, you know, make sure everything is absolutely perfect. 
And so I had to learn to just do the pertinence and what keeps the patient the safest and me the safest at the end of the day. And as well as just in my home life. Home life organization is something Nicole Joyce, mother of four kids ages 6 through 13, could totally relate to. What about some? This is Nicole with her nine-year-old son, Sean. Since March, she's been juggling her work remotely while teaching Sean and his three siblings from home. I think for our house, the biggest challenge was trying to coordinate everyone's schedules because we have two kids in middle school and then two in elementary school. So they have different lunch times. They have different break schedules. Um, I had one in band earlier playing the trombone while another one was simultaneously in gym class doing jumping jacks in another room. (laughs) So just trying to figure out where everyone was going to be in what space at what time without disrupting each other was probably the, the challenge that took us the longest to try and work out. What do you think, Sean? What was the hardest thing about this year so far? Getting to know my, well, getting to know um, Miss Vivian a little bit. Getting to know your teacher? Mm-hmm. It was harder because you were on the computer? Mm-hmm. Sam Donato also has a family of sorts to manage. At least that's what he calls them. My passion lies with the restaurant, honestly. Sam is the general manager of the very trendy Pow Detroit restaurant, an Asian fusion restaurant in the old Michigan Oriental Theater. I genuinely love what I do. I'm happy to be the general manager here. I would do anything for my staff. In January, COVID-19 seemed like a distant disaster, an unsettling tragedy, but one far from our reality. It's one of those things where, you know, you take a class on it once a year and get a refresher and you never think you're really going to have to run a hospital like that. We didn't think it would make it to us. You know, you saw it in China and then all of a sudden, About mid-March, we had cases in Michigan. Phase two, the impact. This step of the shock cycle evaluates the actual moment of disaster or shock. With COVID, it happened at a slightly different moment for everyone. For some, it was the stay-at-home mandate. For others, it was a dystopian grocery store visit where people clambered over toilet paper. For Kelly and other essential workers, it was a blunt reality in her everyday work. In the end of March, she started going into what she calls internal disaster mode. And all of a sudden we had to, and it's always just been in training. It's never, we've never had to actually put it into action before. And so that was uh, working the kinks out of that was scary. And then on top of it, I was pregnant the entire time. And that gave me a lot of um, anxiety and fear because, you know, really this this uh, virus and disease, we don't know what the outcome are in pregnancy because it's a novel virus. So that that was a very scary thing. For Nicole, the shock hit when schools closed, her work went remote, and she realized this disorienting home life was somehow going to be the new normal. I think it was really hard on the kids. I think coming home and not knowing when they might be able to go back to school or if they would be able to go back to school was very challenging. And not having that constant connection with their teachers and their classmates and their community was, was definitely um, a struggle. And I don't even know if all of them had the, the words or the vocabulary to describe how that felt for them. We just saw that manifesting in their behavior. You know, they were just stressed out much easier. Things that normally wouldn't bother them were 
were really, you know, making them more frustrated much quicker. Um, they were obviously not getting along with each other as well as they normally did. So it was noticeable for us as parents that the change in, in of pace and the change of routine was very disruptive to them as a whole. What do you think, Sean? Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. What was hard when you had to first come home from school? Pay attention, not get in, not um, touch people. Did you like how you had to do all that schoolwork by yourself without your teacher there? Yeah. What I didn't like was that my teacher could help me. What I did like is I was trying it by myself. Oh. But on the hard problems, yeah, I would definitely need my teacher's help. You felt like you needed more help than you could get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nicole found all of this felt like hard problems. With this in mind, she started a new family habit. Well, one of the things that we started right away, even last spring when school closed, was we started making sure that we were praying as a family before the school day started. So it wasn't the same as our usual morning prayer. It was everyone actually sitting down and like taking a quiet moment to offer up specifically the challenges that we were having in school and really kind of pray for patients to kind of get through the day. And it was a very um, calming experience, I think, for all of us. And now we're at the point where if I forget, the kids are reminding me, they're like, Mom, we didn't pray, we gotta pray, we gotta pray before school starts. And they know what time it has to start. (laughs) So it's really been like a good way for us to kind of jumpstart our day and help everybody remember to be extra considerate of each other now that we're all kind of on top of each other in the house. Sam's new normal meant letting go of staff members in the face of restaurant closures. For him, it was the most distressing part, the reality that his family members were losing their livelihood. But the alternative was not an option for him. Well, it was more frantic in the beginning, but that's where I was kind of saying before where I kind of had to I had to force myself to get learn things and get information and study up. You know, it's not, you know, being a general manager at a restaurant just just isn't doing voids and comps and taking, you know, upset customers and guests, you you know, phone calls. You're always growing your knowledge with whatever might be going on to keep, you know, the staff calm and let them reassure them and show them not by just using your words, but by action that, you know, their health, their safety is on our best interest as a leader. Uh, you know, if we had to, and we've we've done it before, where we've you know we've had to close down Powell just to make sure that, hey, you know, there's an outbreak. You know, we just want to make sure that we're cleaning down the restaurant. So unfortunately, we're closing down Friday and Saturday, and that's literally just to clean the restaurant because, at the end of the day, we would rather shut down for a day, than and make sure everyone's safe and be able to reopen the next day then push it and risk it and put, you know, everybody at risk. And it's important to just keep reminding yourself and reminding staff and reminding the people that, hey, we got this for right now. Don't worry. You know, we'll push through it. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you need anything from me, I'm always here for you. In the ICU, Kelly and her co-workers started transforming their ER rooms into negative pressure rooms for COVID patients. At COVID's peak, they only had 10 spare rooms for all their other patients. Every room you went into, you would have to put on an N95 mask, a regular surgical mask, a face shield, and then a gown. So 
if you imagine if somebody just wants a cup of water, you can't just go in and give them a cup of water or give them their pain meds. It's now an extra five minute process. So your day to day just became very, very exhausting. It sounds silly, but it's exhausting to take all of that on and off every time. Um, and then you had this anxiety the entire time because you're trying to not cross contaminate yourself as you're taking it on and off and um, you know, you're washing your hands in between each of this, and then you still have to go sit and chart and somebody's in distress or, you know, they can't breathe or they're, they need CPR. And that person just was in distress for those few you know minutes while you're putting all this stuff on you and you're panicking because you want to get in there to your patient, but yet you don't want to get sick and take this to your kids. The environment of the hospital changed drastically. Um, the hospital's always been like a little city. There's a Starbucks and a Papa Joe's and it's just hustle and bustle and surgeries and people. And I remember just walking down the hallway and there, there's nobody. The entrances were blocked off with tape because nobody was allowed to come in and or out of them. And there's no families walking around. Um, it just, it was very, very surreal to just, you know, look around and all the tables and chairs where people would sit and wait for people were gone. It, it was, it was a, it was a strange, strange time. I was very, very scared. Um, of what I was seeing and of just getting my family sick or myself getting sick. Um, I didn't really know what would happen. So I was very fearful. And then um, it kind of turned to just frustration because it's just, it's daunting and frustrating <laughs> to do that day in and day out. In April, when Kelly was 14 weeks pregnant, she got COVID. I did a lot of praying. <laughs> and a lot of talking to God, um, especially praying to help help get my family through this and for me to keep them safe from it um, so that I, I didn't bring anything home to them. That was scary. I was very fortunate that I really didn't get very sick at all, um, but that I, I can't even count how much I talked to God and <laughs> Jesus and prayed that my children and my husband didn't get sick. For Laura, it wasn't the cacophony, but the silence that she struggled with. I think the challenge of, of living alone is being faced with how you spend your time. Um, and there, there really isn't, um, I mean, you're accountable only to yourself in a certain sense. And, um, and so if I sit and scroll on my phone for two hours, like I know that, nobody else knows that. And so there's a there's a particular type of freedom in that, but like where, where you don't have someone, you know, you don't have someone saying, Hey, you know, you've been sitting there on the phone for two hours. Like nobody's going to know that I did that. Um, and so it, it's just, it, it, it's interesting. It's different. And so like kind of being faced with, Oh, why am I so disappointed that I couldn't go to that concert? It's because that concert was going to distract me from something that I, you know, that I've been dealing with or not dealing with, you know, and so we're just kind of faced with all of these realities of who we are and kind of, you know, do we accept the challenge of, of God calling us to change um, or do we just continue to try to distract ourselves from that? And so, you know, the, the, the solid solitude and loneliness are not, are not the same thing. Um, but there were definitely moments of like, wow, I'm very aware of how alone I am right now. And that's really hard. Like Holy Saturday was a really tough day for me. 
um, because I wasn't with my family and I was very aware of that. And I'd been so busy with work and it was just that moment of stopping and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm alone. But then also recognizing like, I'm not, like God is with me. I found so many moments of grace um, in inviting God into these um, experiences that I was having that were so different um, from working uh, working at home, which seems like 24 hours a day, um, to, you know, trying to understand that God is reworking in this circumstance. And what am I, what am I being called to be open to and to learn throughout this experience? This brings us to phase three, disaster management. This measures how an organization responds to whatever challenges a disaster brings. In Metro Detroit, a fierce camaraderie grew out of shared anxieties about loved ones. We were united under the shared sacrifices we were making for the common good of the most vulnerable populations. While businesses were closed, countless soup kitchens worked round the clock to keep Detroit's homeless fed. Detroit distilleries and breweries transitioned into hand sanitizer production, while other companies moved to making medical face masks. Church and neighborhood groups collaborated to deliver groceries to immunocompromised residents. Masses, Eucharistic adoration, Bible studies, and more moved online. It was these harrowing months that conversely revealed the heroism, selflessness, and unity of Detroit. So I would say that Detroit is hands down one of the most supportive cities I've ever seen. You know, we donated 80 free lunches to the Detroit Police Department. We did another, you know, 150 lunches for the Henry Ford Hospital. Um, We got really connected to our community and we used you know, where we were only able to do carry out when we first reopened, you know, we used that to our benefit to still make sure that the community knew that, you know, no matter what happens in the city, you know, we still got your guys' back. Once we reopened uh, back in June 16th after the initial lockdown, um, those free lunches that we gave to the police department and stuff, you know, we saw those guys coming back with their wives for dinner or, you know, they recommended friends to come to the restaurant. And then just, you know, word of mouth kind of just blew up right away. You know, they really had our back and said, hey, check out Powell. Powell's doing the right things. And this and the third, um, where, you know, when we came back, you know, we were we were on a two-week wait list um, just to do business on a Friday or Saturday. And, you know, we you know we couldn't be more appreciative to, to the city of Detroit. The love that we felt in March and April in the hospital, it was scary and it was horrible but I've never been fed so well in my life. Every day I would come into work and there was free food and somebody's family or some company had brought us dinner. Um, Mark Wahlberg bought us all hamburgers one day, the entire hospital, entire staff of Royal Oak Beaumont got hamburgers. My neighborhood was just, they knew I was a nurse, all my neighbors do. And they were amazing. I would just come out to food on my front porch and dinners made for me. And my one neighbor did an entire Costco run and left it on my porch because she knew I was tired. It was the watching your community come together like that was just really, really heartwarming and made me appreciate so much more of the wonderful people in my life. I think the the spirit of Detroit has been evident in the church. Um, in our Catholic schools, and I think in the city itself, I think Detroit, I love Detroit, and Detroit is brilliant, and uh, there's, a, there's a hope, um, even if it's not an apparent hope, um, in the goodness of people and in um, persevering and rising to challenges. 
right when the lockdown started and we knew that we wouldn't be able to gather in our churches anymore. Um, my parish, St. Aloysius, we started um, an outreach to some of the older parishioners in the parish just to make sure that they were okay to check in on them. And that has provided a, a connection and um, just very meaningful relationships in my life. I felt more connected to, ironically, I felt more connected to fellow parishioners when I was stuck at home than I did when I um, when I was attending mass with them. Um, and so we had an opportunity to just develop relationships and to learn from one another and, and just share one another, with one another. And, and it's been a beautiful experience for me. And, and some of the relationships continue and um, we just care for one another and, and remain connected, even though we do have the opportunity to see each other in person too, which those, those, those opportunities are nice. But it really provided um, just a way for us to connect in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise if it were not for the pandemic. We're rising from the ashes, for sure. That's, I think that spirit has been with us for much longer than the pandemic um, because we know that, that God will always see us through and that he'll always be with us, carrying us through to whatever our next challenge or our next grace will be. I have a question. What did you um, mean um, that we were rising up from the ashes? Oh, that's, that's that the, just an expression, Mom? That's the slogan for the city of Detroit from Father Gabriel Richard. He says that we'll rise from the ashes. So even after we encounter something really difficult, we can still come out of it having learned something or grown in some way or improved in some way. Phase four, recovery. At the end of this year, it's easy to ask these kinds of hard questions. In the face of so many lives lost, the question of suffering looms big in the minds of every believer. But there's another truth that looms bigger. Looking back on the year, the presence of God speaks profoundly through the persistent resurrections of Detroit. In our ability to find spiritual communion in the face of division, in the profound love that speaks in the most silent and isolated moments, and most of all, in our resilience. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the communications department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.